From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to my special 9-11 19th anniversary special. This interview was recorded in September of 2012. I just returned from Santa Monica, where I'd met and interviewed Phil Marshall on the Santa Monica Pier. We spoke a few more times on the phone after that interview, which was for my TV program. I don't believe that interview ever aired. So, here's how it sounded. Have a listen. Philip Marshall is a veteran airline captain, former government special activities contract pilot. He's authored three previous books on top-secret America. And his latest, as I just mentioned, is The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Time is tight. The information here is so compelling, so important. So let's get right to it. Philip, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, good evening, Richard. How are you? Terrific, thank you. And it was uh, a delight meeting you in Santa Monica a couple of weeks back and a real eye-opener. Yes. Let me uh, begin uh, by saying this. I finished the book. Again, I think it's important that uh, everyone within earshot uh, get a copy. Not that, uh, you know, not that I I normally promote books to this extent, but I think you've really nailed this one. Uh, Like a lot of people, I got distracted with the whole controlled demolition uh, aspect of this unsolved crime. And now, after reading your book, Philip, I am convinced that that is a huge distraction, uh, maybe by design, I'm not sure. But um, a lot of the information, uh, the, uh, the I mean, this is the, 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 the world's biggest unsolved crime, and a lot of the information that solves it is contained in a report that was... Uh, issued by the Congressional Joint Inquiry, something that most people have never heard of, fewer have even read. Tell me about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. When did, when was it formed, and 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 who were its um, leaders? Yeah, it was uh, it was right after the attacks. Actually, uh, in 2002, the inquiry was formed over the objections of the Bush White House. And um, Senator Bob Graham, who was the head of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence uh, for the Senate, was the head of that inquiry. And, um, you know, they did a 10-month investigation into it. They were able to find FBI documents, you know, that showed that the FBI agents had, had been following the 9-11 hijackers and that they had been in contact in, in close, uh, uh, continuous contact with uh, Saudi Arabian uh, intelligence agents who were acting as their uh, as their guides through America. Uh, you know, they they landed in. Um, I mean, the, the inquiry report is is fascinating. Uh, it shows that the hijacker, two of the hijackers, had landed in Los Angeles back in uh, January, on January 15th to be precise, of uh, 2000, and were soon met by Saudi agents who were connected to my area of expertise, which is the training of the of the hijackers on the on the Boeing airplanes. Uh, the the uh, uh, Bob Phil uh, or Bob Graham rather. 
right. who led the inquiry. He was joined by a couple of top-notch congressional investigators. Tell me about them. Yeah, there was uh, one, Eleanor Hill was a, uh, a, a veteran congressional investigator and another guy named Jake Jacobson, who, uh, who was also a F- former FBI uh, agent, and he had turned um, into an investigator. He, he investigated it for, for the Congress also. As you point out, you have two FBI's in this scenario. You have the field agents who are trying desperately to avert or avoid uh, catastrophe. And then you have this other FBI with asterisks beside it. Explain the difference between the field agents and this other FBI, FBI headquarters, I believe you referred to them as. Yeah, well, the FBI field agents were following the hijackers. They were looking for them, and then headquarters, basically, which was, you know, being run out of the George Bush Center for Intelligence, you know, every time they sent up, you know, hey, we found these guys out training, you know, later on in in the investigation, the hijackers were out in the desert in Arizona training to fly Boeing airplanes, and the FBI field agents actually sent up a message to headquarters hey we found these guys out here we believe they're up to no good we believe they're doing some sort of a terrorist operation and they sent the warnings up to washington and when they got there they literally disappeared now before we get into a lot of the substance here which again connects the dots really between the royal house of saud members of the royal family of saudi arabia and the 9-11 terrorists and this national security state that you're beginning to describe. Let me ask you why we haven't heard about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. If it was struck in in 2002 and you had Senator Bob Graham leading this and investigators, this is before the 9-11 Commission. Why didn't we hear about this? Why didn't the mainstream media report about this inquiry? Yeah, well, it was Dick Cheney's work. Uh, Dick Cheney actually called Bob Graham on the phone and told him to basically put a lid on it and, um, you know, that if he tried to reveal any of the stuff that they ended up redacting in that report, which was 28 pages worth, that they would face charges of leaking classified information. So they, they threatened him with jail if he was to release any of this information to the to the media or to the public. And then Bob Graham would later, a couple of years later, write his own book. Uh, I believe it was entitled Security Matters. Did he divulge this information in that book? Yes, he, he, he went into great detail, you know, and, and he made a, a bunch of great points. You know, one, one being that, you know, hey, if it would be so difficult, you know, say you and I, Richard, decided we're going to go to Russia and do some sort of a... Uh, a you know aerial assault like this in a, in a big operation you know how how difficult would it really be you know for for them to detect us in their country trying to pull off some sort of an attack like this but as we look at this there were you know there were at least 20 people involved in the, in the direct conspiracy and um you know the people behind the the scenes who were training these uh, hijackers to become pilots, you know, to fly a mission that lasted about 30 minutes long, you know, you know, it, it really gets, it, it really is almost impossible to think that, you know, that these guys could have been in the country training, 
you know, for this big mission. You know, we went, we know where they went at the beginning. They went to Florida for their initial, you know, basic training in small airplanes. And then later on, you know, in 2001, they all moved to the, they all moved to the desert and started flying these, you know, uh, learning how to fly these Boeing, uh, airplanes that they were, that was, that was used in the attacks. Uh, let me remind listeners, Philip Marshall, a veteran airline captain, is with us and uh, uh, has led a comprehensive 10-year study into the tactical plan used by the 9-11 hijackers and is the leading aviation expert on the September 11th attack. Uh, let me just set the table here uh, for those just joining us, Philip. So uh, you believe that uh, and, and the congressional uh, joint inquiry uh, tends to suggest that this was an inside job. It was carried out. In part by the the uh, the hijackers, but there was obviously participation within the U.S. administration. Yes, someone you know the, the the entire mission was was carried out by the Saudi Arabian intelligence uh, agency, and you know the nine eleven um, joint inquiry said that you know they were Saudi spies that had seemingly unlimited funds from Saudi Arabia. They knew where they were getting the money from. They, they tracked down the bank accounts, and they were able to find, you know, that they had shared bank accounts with some of the top people in the Saudi monarchy, including uh, this Prince Bandar bin Sultan was, um, you know, he. I, I believe that he was the initial mastermind. And then they later on farmed out, you know, the actual attack and the execution to the former Saudi intelligence chief, uh, a guy named uh, Prince uh, Turkey Al-Fazl, who they found, you know, he left Las Vegas, you know, in the same desert, you know, just a few days after the attacks with a 100 men, you know. So they had a pretty big logistical and tactical team on the ground operating in the U.S., and I believe that, you know, they could not have been operating here without some sort of protection from our intelligence community. Uh, you, you, you point out that uh, Bandar al-Sultan Sultan is, is um, or at least you, you, you were describing this to me when we were in Santa Monica together, that, uh, that he is so close uh, to the Bush family that he's known as Bandar Bush. Yes, and, you know, before 9-11, I was actually studying the Iran-Contra uh, affair that I was involved in back in the 80s. And his name came up as a financier in the illegal arming of the Nicaraguan Contras. You know, so the Bush, uh, the Bush Cheney, uh, Saudi connection goes way back. It goes back at least 30 years to when, you know, these guys have worked together on several covert missions together. Now, Bandar was at the time the ambassador to Washington, was he not? That is correct. And, you know, we found, I mean, he met Donald Rumsfeld in, I have a picture of him on our Facebook page. Uh, our Facebook page is called The Big Bamboozle, and uh, it's a good place to go. That's where we put we post a lot of our uh, videos and a lot of the media coverage that we believe is, is nonsense, and then we will rebut the, you know, the postings that the media makes. But, um, you know, Bandar is... You know, he, he is really, <laughs> he goes back along, he, he goes along, back a long way with the, with the Bush uh, family. 
Okay, so let's say one group of people, like the American people, pay you $400,000 a year to be President of the United States. But then another group of people invest in you, your friends, and their related businesses $1.4 billion over a number of years. Because that's how much the Saudi royals and their associates have given the Bush family, their friends, and their related businesses in the past three decades. Is it rude to suggest that when the Bush family wakes up in the morning, they might be thinking about what's best for the Saudis instead of what's best for you or me? That clip you heard um, was from Michael Moore's documentary, Fahrenheit 9-11. Not a Michael Moore fan, but I think at least he came close to getting at the truth. Wouldn't you agree, Phil? Yeah, he was on the right track for sure. Um, you know, the, the missing link here to all the, you know, the, these theories uh, with the Saudis is, is what I was investigating, and, and that is basically the nuts and bolts of 9-11, you know, how they actually executed the attack, how they actually trained the hijackers, how they actually flew the mission, you know, um, how, how they prepared for it, how they, um, you know, how they started, you know, years in advance. This thing, you know, there's there's another group called the Project for a New American Century. I bet you've heard of that. Oh, yes. And um, they, you know, they basically wrote the blueprint for the post-9-11 world, which was to invade the Middle East and to pretty much clamp down on, you know, American society. Um, you know, you can look at this as the the central intelligence has, has basically taken over the United States government. They've changed their name to the United States Intelligence Community. They're based at the George Bush Center of Intelligence in Langley, Virginia. And they now control 16 of our most powerful agencies in Washington. And... Um, you know, those include the Department of Homeland Security, you know, DHS, the TSA, Transportation Security Agency, the CIA, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, and here's the big one, the United States Treasury, where over $15 trillion have disappeared from our Treasury since the 9-11 attack. So this is a coup d'etat. Uh, it's the second coup d'etat. First, they took the executive branch over in 63 in Daly Plaza, and then, I guess, the remaining important uh, um, uh, departments uh, with 9-11. Phil, uh, Phil, is, um, Phil Marshall is with us, the author of The Big Bamboozle. I, I mentioned before the break, uh, Prince Bandar, member of the Saudi royal family, was the ambassador to Washington, D.C. during 9-11, his wife, did she not write checks to the, the terrorists? Yeah, well, they, they had a joint bank account at the Riggs Bank in Washington that was in business, I think, since 18, 1830 or, so, you know, way back before the, you know, before the Civil War even, you know, and uh, this was a big Washington powerful bank, and, you know, she had an account there, and so did Bandar himself. And then the hijackers, the people who were uh, supporting the hijackers, were harboring the hijackers on the West Coast, also had a bank account at that same bank. And there was transfers that the Congressional Joint Inquiry found that went from her bank account directly to the people who were aiding the hijackers. So, I mean, this is not conspiracy uh, theory, folks. This is the, these are the findings of the Congressional Joint Inquiry, which was largely ignored, 
muzzled uh, by uh, Dick Cheney. Even uh, now, did Cheney not sick the FBI to investigate the uh, the members of the inquiry? Yeah, according to Graham's book, uh, you know, he wrote a book called Intelligence Matters, and um, you know, he described how you know they were threatening you know the the investigators, the congressional staff, and everything with lie detector tests, with all kinds of you know intrusive uh, you know interrogations, and just threatened them, and they muzzled them into silence, and that's exactly what uh, Senator Graham said. They were muzzled into silence by Dick Cheney. Now, the the Saudi uh, agent that that met uh, at least two of the hijackers, I believe, in in San Diego. Uh, tell me about this individual. Yeah, well, this guy was named Omar Al Bayoumi, and he was a um, he was a Saudi national living in the United States, living living in San Diego. And on uh, just a couple of days after the hijackers had landed in in Los Angeles, he drove up to the Saudi embassy and met behind closed doors at the Saudi embassy and left that meeting and and went directly to a a small restaurant in Los Angeles where the hijackers were waiting. And he, now the thing that I found really interesting about him was he was the guy that I was looking for because when I put the, uh, I began my research by putting together the attack. I recreated the attack. I recreated the times that they departed, how they flew the mission, what kind of air, you know, aviation uh, skills were needed to fly this mission, and I determined that they had definitely had contact with Boeing experts. And this guy Omar Bayoumi was working for a company called Dalla Avco out of on the west coast but they were based in Saudi Arabia and they had Boeing aircraft that they had underneath their uh, under their certificate so this was my aviation expert that I was looking for and he was he wasn't an aviation expert but he led them to the company that had training materials had simulators had all the you know all the things that you would need to you know, train the hijackers, and I'm sure he had access to uh, Arabic-speaking flight instructors for the Boeing aircraft. Omar Al Bayoumi. This is he's he was an is an employee of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority. Right. And he met these hijackers. Now, this again is co- according to the Congressional Joint Inquiry. Yes. He was someone that the FBI were very interested in speaking to. Yes. What happened when the inquiry tried to speak to this individual? Well, they actually served him a subpoena, or, or they, they wrote up a subpoena, and um, the FBI headquarters and the, the Bush White House refused to serve him the subpoena. Why? They didn't give a reason. They just said... <laughs> you cannot interview this individual. Yeah. This so. is someone who had contact with at least two, perhaps three hijackers prior to the 9-11 attacks, had repeated meetings with them, and the inquiry was told by the FBI, by Dick Cheney, don't you dare speak to this individual. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, and the, the most interesting one is, is the, uh, the, the, the eventual pilot hijacker for American 77, a guy named Hanny Hanjour, this is the one that hit the Pentagon. This is the one that yeah. flew into the Pentagon. That's the one that hit the Pentagon, exactly. And he flew into town um, into San Diego, um, 
you know, the day after Bush was declared president by the Supreme Court. And soon after, within the next week, all three of them left the San Diego area, and that's when they went out into the deserts in Arizona and began to train for the mission. Now, we need to spend some time uh, discussing how this was pulled off, because as you point out in The Big Bamboozle, everything we knew about Al-Qaeda, if there is an Al-Qaeda, up until this point, up till this point, was all about car bombs and and uh, you know shoe bombs and 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 pretty awkward clumsy attempts to bring down airliners now all of a sudden we're led to believe that they're capable of something far more complex i mean exponentially more complex bringing down uh, or bringing the the most sophisticated uh, military uh, and defense mechanism ever known to man to its knees it just doesn't it doesn't add up Oh, it, it's it's absolutely impossible to suggest that these guys, the ones that, and and the thing is, is that there's no evidence. When you when you read over the real evidence in this case, the facts are all point to the Saudi operation, and to suggest that some guy that's living in a cave without electricity was the guy that defeated all U.S. national security is is it's preposterous. More of my conversation with the late Philip Marshall on the other side. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Up until I, I read your book, Phil, I part of me still believe that it, those buildings may have been brought down in part by controlled demolition or some other device, that it wasn't possible, for example, for Honey Honjor to maneuver Flight 77 into the Pentagon and, and, and hit it that way. But you say, I mean, you're, you're speaking as a veteran commercial airline pilot, the things that they did on 9-11, it is possible with the right training. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've flown the patterns in the simulator that they flew. Now, the most difficult one was the one that hit the Pentagon. He, he didn't take over the airplane, and I, I point this out in the book, you know, how the errors that they made. I believe that they meant to take that airplane over a lot earlier, but they didn't, for some reason, they didn't take the airplane over until it was almost 300 miles to the west of Washington. I think the initial plan was to take it around 70, 80 miles, something like that. So there, there was some kind of a, a malfunction going on with the, with the hijacking that they didn't take the airplane over when they should have. It really exposed who was behind it because all that time that it took them to fly, I mean, they were flying for 40 minutes, you know, at 500 miles an hour straight while the country was under attack. Something that would look like a missile on a radar, you know, a 500 mile an hour object coming straight at the nation's capital, it really exposed them. But to, to see the way he flew that airplane, you know, he turned it around, you know, he descended, he took the autopilot off for a while, he put it back on, he came down to 9,000 feet over Dulles Airport, you know, and this is 30 minutes into after they took over the airplane, and supposedly NORAD didn't see this, this missile coming right at Washington. Disconnected the autopilot, he came down to about 7,000 feet, he did a very advanced right descending turn, 
this is all on the on the black box recordings, FAA radar, NTSB reports that I was able to, to get. And he rolled out about 2,500 feet, about four miles to the west of the Pentagon, pushed up the throttles all the way to to the firewall, basically, and nosed the airplane down and hit the Pentagon at an incredible speed, 480 knots indicated. For that airplane at that altitude, the red line is at about 350 knots. So, I mean, this guy really did some phenomenal flying. But, like I said, this guy had time in airplanes before. He had a commercial pilot's license for smaller single-engine airplanes. But definitely, he could have been trained up easily to that level of flying. But it would take many, many practice sessions to get that type of proficiency. And um, American Airlines 11 and United Airlines 175, they hit the North and South Towers. Likewise, those maneuvers, you could do that if you had enough training? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are normal procedures. They're procedures that we practice in the simulator all the time. Basically, uh, 175, the one that we've all seen that hit the South Tower. So, you know, he was over New Jersey at 31,000 feet and basically did a, what we call a, a high dive, which is in case you blow out your uh, pressurization. We practice this all the time where you throttles off, boilers out, you just let the airplane dump down. How would they know exactly where to hit it to cause the buildings to collapse? Well, I think he was trained to hit at a certain point where you were out of the range of the water cannons. And then, you know, if you look, you know, people say, well, you know, a missile or, or whatever. But look, a, a Tomahawk missile weighs 2,500 pounds. It's not a very big missile. A Boeing 767 weighs 300,000 pounds. It would be the equivalent of hitting that building with about 100 Tomahawk missiles when you consider that that airplane, 300,000 pounds with 30,000 gallons of jet fuel in it. That was the biggest conventional missile. Even though it was an airliner, it's a missile. But we were told that the hijackers basically learned to do this by flying in some single-engine planes and then watching some movies. (laughs) Why would they say that? Why wouldn't they give us a more believable story and say, no, they had training. You know, they used simulators. Maybe they even flew a a few Boeings. Yeah, well, they knew that they went into simulators down in Miami and, and one in Arizona. And then I believe that they actually got into real airplanes because at at a certain intelligence community airport just north of Tucson, Arizona, I did the research on it, and that airport had Boeing 757s and 767s parked at that airport at the very time. Again, this is not conspiracy theory. These are the findings of the Congressional Joint Inquiry led by a former Florida senator, a Republican moderate by the name of Bob Graham. And it, well, what what was um, not redacted certainly clearly shows a connection between the uh, the Saudi royal family and the 9-11 attackers, or the 9-11 terrorists, rather. Uh, but none of that could have happened without complicity from somewhere inside the United States government. Now is it is does the nine, does the congressional inquiry go so far uh, Phil as to indict individuals in the US government uh, for this cover up or do they simply hint that there was a cover up what what do they say? Um, I know the parts that have been declassified do not go into that. 
Uh, however, uh, Senator Graham has, you know, vehemently, uh, you know, exposed that the, there was 28 pages that are still classified that go into greater detail. And um, th- those 28 pages, now th- this is a report, this is a congressional report paid for by the taxpayers to get to the bottom of the 9-11 incident. And... Um, the attack, and um, you know, for for Dick Cheney to step in there and say, "No, I'm sorry, you guys, this is classified," and w- when everyone on that committee was saying that there was nothing, nothing that affected national security, that it was just a total embarrassment, they called it to the um, to the to the Bush administration. Now let's get back to this um, this covert airfield that you've concluded was where the terrorists, where the hijackers were trained in simulators. Now, first of all, is it possible, speaking as a veteran airline uh, captain, is it possible for an individual to fly in Boeing simulators undetected? Uh, it'd be very, very difficult. I mean, there there's contracts, contractors that, that, that uh, rent out Boeing simulators to, you know, potential pilots. Now, I'm not talking about simulators here. I'm talking about actual airplanes that were on the ground at this, uh, this air base, um, that's known for covert activity. It, it goes all the way back to the Air America days when they were training in the C-123s. And, um, you know, this airport has a long history of black operations and uh, covert operations being trained out of that airport. So there's a lot of top secret stuff going on out there. I went out there myself to, to visit that airport one night and I saw all kinds of Black Hawk helicopters. Uh, I saw C-131s, C-130s, you know, out there practicing training all throughout the night. So, so you've deduced that this this airfield is where the hijackers uh, learn to fly Boeing's. That's my that's my educated guess. The um, you know at the at the time we had Saudi, we knew we had the Saudi hijackers out there. We had the Saudi uh, intelligence people out there. And we know that there were 757s and 767s, the, the same planes that were used in the attack. They were parked at this field. Would they have actually been able to to, to do a dry run and actually fly, take take their turn uh, in the captain's chair of a 757 or a 767 while in flight? Absolutely. Absolutely. They could have done that many, many, many times over. And the, the Congressional Joint Inquiry and, and the 9-11 Commission both found that all of the pilot hijackers had made trips, you know, in, into the desert um, for, for, from about May until August of uh, 2001, where they would, they would land at Las Vegas Airport in the, in the desert and they would disappear for three or four days at a time, and then they would reappear and go back to the East Coast. And that every last one of them was documented to do that. And in the Big Bamboozle, I show you know all of these you know all, all the testimony of the of the FBI director who was who actually mentioned those flights. 
And again, it's not possible, for example, that these hijackers told the people that were training them we're members of the, uh, you know, we're, we're bodyguards for the Saudi royal family. They want us to train as pilots. Why couldn't they have, have used that excuse? Oh, well, they used that excuse when they were in basic training down in Florida when people were asking them what they were doing, you know, in Florida learning how to fly airplanes. And they, they said that they were Saudi royal family bodyguards learning how to fly airplanes. But when they got out into the desert, um, they, FBI agents were following them around. You know, and, and reporting, hey, you know, these guys are out here, you know, in the desert. They're learning how to fly airplanes. We think they're doing some kind of a terrorist activity. They sent that up. You know, it, that's all documented in the report. This uh, this FBI uh, field agent out of Phoenix uh, reported them. That, I mean, they could have stopped this. They could have stopped the attack probably ten times from the time just on the FBI reporting, you know, through their own channels. All right, we'll take a time out. Phil Marshall, the Big Bamboozle, stays with us. Back with more. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. President Bush continuing his track through the Middle East, he lands in Saudi Arabia this morning, where the government there declared a national holiday in his honor. His warm welcome comes on the coattails of a $20 billion arms deal that the U.S. has pledged for Saudi Arabia. The deal gives Saudi Arabia the right to buy precision-guided missiles from the U.S. Welcome back. Let me crib here quickly from the big bamboozle. From the moment the hijackers arrived on U.S. soil, it is well documented that Saudi intelligence agents and employees of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority provided housing, obtained driver's licenses, and harbored them. After lying low as a sleeper cell throughout the year 2000, they would be led to intensive flight training in the Arizona desert in December of 2000, which leads to the first plausible explanation of the incredible flying performance demonstrated on 9-11. After submitting an 800-page report to the American public, Moderate U.S. Senator Bob Graham of Florida, the co-chairman of the inquiry, said, quote, There was a direct line between the terrorists and the government of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi government had provided logistical and financial support to at least two of the 9-11 hijackers while they lived in Southern California. Graham chronicled that FBI headquarters had responded aggressively to Cheney's request that the FBI investigate the inquiry staff during the investigation, interviewing dozens of members of Congress and their aides. The Bureau suggested it wanted to use polygraphs on some of the lawmakers with the threat of prosecution and jail, of being traitors in a time of war. To, to Graham, the entire experience seemed surreal. So, the, nine, uh, the, uh, the inquiry connects the dots to uh, Saudi intelligence, and then goes on to document how, or at least uh, Bob Graham did in his book, how Dick Cheney and the FBI wanted to cover this up. To me, that's pretty much case closed. You don't have to believe in controlled demolition to know that certain elements within the U.S. government working with Saudi intelligence pulled 9-11 off. Uh, Philip Marshall, uh, back to this airfield. Is there a connection between this airfield and Blackwater? Oh, yes. Um, you know, th- there was an author named Jeremy Scahill who wrote the book Blackwater, and he really chronicled the connections between the uh, the number three man, supposedly, at, at, at CIA, um, a guy named Buzzy Krongard, 
um, he was he was the man who was doling out contracts, you know, no bid contracts to to Blackwater on behalf of of us, the taxpayers, basically. And uh, he was also the head of of the same investment firm, you know. Uh, he was formerly the head of the, the the same investment firm who placed put option trades, stock trades on two airlines. Only two airlines were were traded in 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 big portions in the week prior to 9/11, and it was by his firm and. The the only two airlines that they used were American and United Airlines. They 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 um, they they traded stock. They put put options. You know you know betting that that the the stock price for United and American would go down. They did not place any other stock options on any other airlines. And that was done through the Chicago Stock Exchange. But how do we know it was Buzzy Krongard? Uh We don't know that it was from him, but we know that it was from the firm that he once found it. So there is a connection there. Alex Brown Bank, was that it? Uh, exactly, Alex mm-hmm. Brown. All right, let's grab some calls. Uh, our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal checks in. I agree. You know, the planes are a distraction. I mean, look at Building 7, right? I mean, what are they going to say there? An invisible plane hit the building? But <laughs> you see the whole situation. But, you know, the real question is, what about the dancing Israelis? I don't think there was just any one. But this is too big for any. If anybody knows anything about the intelligence agencies, this is too big an operation for just one. I'm sure the Saudis were involved, but there were a lot well, of... We are folks- Focusing on the and um, uh, so far the banned book on the subject. It's also as important as English literature, media scientists. Rich, we should remember um, Andreas von Bülow's book was banned, and he talked about the CIA and 9/11. So there were lots of agencies involved, and uh, there were dancing Israelis too. And I wonder about what you think about the about the uh, or the the author of this book. It sounds like an interesting book. I haven't read it, but what does he think about? the other uh, reports and uh, what brought down building seven i'd be interested in what he found well the building seven thing is, is suspicious to me i'm I, you know i'm not a building expert my my area of expertise is the airplanes and how they got to where they were on 9-11 you know i'm not an expert on how buildings come down but um as far as the dancing israelis I think we need to look at that project for a new American century uh, document real close again, the Rebuilding America's Defenses. A lot of those guys, Paul Wolfowitz was in there, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, these were all Cheney people. As you point out, a lot of special interest groups, uh, individuals, we need to point out, we're talking about individuals here. We don't want to point fingers at countries or, or nationalities. Now, as for, as for Building 7, I mean, when I look at that, that could have been controlled demolition. Like I said, that's way out of my area of expertise. My area is the airplanes and how they got to where they got. We'll take a quick time out and then more on the Saudi connection to 9-11 and my conversation with the late Philip Marshall. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back to my 9-11-19th anniversary special. Now, I've dipped into my vast audio archives tonight, and I hope you had a chance to listen to Hour 1, 
and my August 2016 interview with Dr. Judy Wood, the author of Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Energy Technology on 9-11. And now we return to my 2012 interview with the late Philip Marshall, former airline pilot, CIA contract pilot, and author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. All right, let's say hello to Michael in the beaches. Michael, welcome. Yes, uh, good evening, Richard and uh, Phil Marshall. I seem to remember years ago uh, hearing some hijacker uh, being quoted as saying that he didn't want to know how to you know, start the plane or take off, and he didn't want to know how to land the plane. He just simply wanted to know how to fly the plane. And if that is true, that he allegedly said this, where would he have gotten the training, and was he one of the hijackers that died as well? Yeah, now that was in, that was in the uh, the basic training phases when these guys were learning how to fly smaller airplanes, and they, they were getting introduction courses in a Boeing simulator down in uh, Opelika, Florida. I believe that's where this incident happened. The guy went in there. They're trying to prepare themselves for the training that was coming up on the airplanes, I believe. So that when he went into that simulator, he said, well, I don't really need to know how to take off. I just need to know how to fly around. Michael, thank you for the call. You mentioned earlier uh, uh, a Prince Turkey El Faisal, another member of the royal family. Uh, again, what, his connection to the 9-11 uh, hijackers was what? Well, he was he was in the desert. In, uh, they, they departed Las Vegas. There wasn't anything written up on him until... They, they started looking into these flights that left uh, Las Vegas on September 19th, 20th, and I think 22nd, um, right after the attack. And there were three chartered airliners that left Las Vegas back, going back to, to the kingdom. And he was on one of them, and there was a 100 men with him. So he had been in the desert at the same time that the hijackers had been in the desert and, and the people who were harboring them. Now, it's interesting because some of the, the survivors or the families of uh, those killed in the 9-11 attacks, they launched a, a class action suit against Prince Turkey Al-Faisal, did they not? That's correct. And, 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 and what happened with that suit? That suit was thrown out because the, the federal judge ruled that you know, we we can't sue a, a company, a, a country who is operating on U.S. soil, <laughs> e- even though that that is illegal for a, for a foreign intelligence agency to be operating on U.S. soil. And and who was the lawyer for Turkey Al Faisal? Um, well, it came out of. Uh, James Baker's law firm down there, you know, James Baker and, and, and the Bush family are real tight. He was uh, chief of staff for, for, for George 41. Exactly. And James Baker and George 41, during the Reagan years, you have concluded, were essentially responsible for the, uh, the Iran-Contra. Exactly, yes. Do you think, then, that James Baker and George 41 were also involved, along with Dick Cheney, uh, with the Saudi, uh, the Saudi uh, Civil Aviation Authority and, and uh, uh, members of the, the, the Saudi royal family in orchestrating 9-11. Yeah, I mean, I believe that they. this is a long-term plan to take over our government. And I, I wrote about that in my first book uh, that was titled Lakefront Airport. 
it's not available for sale right now, but it will be soon. Um, but yes, I, I started to make the, connect the dots between James Baker, the Bush family, the Saudi family, and, um, you know, all this before 9-11 even, even started. So would you then conclude that we are, what we, what we witnessed on 9-11 was a, was a coup d'etat? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at what, what has happened to our government since then, um, you know, and, and the big thing is that, you know, our justice system has been railroaded. Um, you know, they, they, they blame that at, at the same time they were training these Saudis, the back channels and CIA were floating this rumor about some, some dark ghost that nobody had ever seen, you know, some, some spooky guy named, you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, you know, boo, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, so, so they were spreading the, through the back channels that this guy was getting ready to attack. So on, when, when the attack came down, everyone in CIA and everyone in, in the intelligence community said, oh yeah, we know who's, who's gonna do, who, who did this, you know, it's, it's this guy Osama bin Laden. And then, but when you look into it, there is no, no, not one shred of evidence of any involvement in the planning or the execution of the attack. Now, Prince Bandar, it, it was reported on July 26th, again, the former Saudi ambassador to Washington, that he was assassinated. Uh, what do we know about Prince Bandar's whereabouts? Is he, in fact, dead, or do we know? Well, it's been known for... It, 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 there's been rumored for quite some time that he's he's got major drug and alcohol problems um, and that he'd been in some kind of an asylum or some kind of rehab facility for years. It's well documented that he has drug and alcohol issues. And for him, he, you know, he, he's been coming and going in the media, and I think it's probably just another propaganda ploy. It might be his, his plan to escape, just say that, oh, I'm dead and disguise himself and go live on, on an island somewhere for the rest of his life. I don't know. Phil, when it comes to 9-11, uh, skeptics uh, who suggest there's no way it would have been uh, an inside job, it's even you know odious and, and uh, disgusting to suggest such a thing, and they say, so where are the whistleblowers? Well, we've got Senator Bob Graham sort of blowing the whistle, but where are these FBI field agents who tried to tell they're higher ups that this was going on and they were repeatedly ignored. Why aren't they speaking out? Why aren't they more vocal? You know, that's a good question. In a federal trial, you know, which I have always pushed for, you know, bring this Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to trial. Bring these guys up on on a witness stand and let them do it. But you know, this is what I call a beer bottle cap conspiracy. You know, you've got all these people down in the middle of the of the bottle that are doing the grunt work, the real Americans, the real people who are who are honest but it right at the top they put the director of the fbi in there and he holds down all that information so it'd be very interesting to get these guys on the stand and and, and hear what they have to really say uh philip job well done with the big bamboozle how can folks get a copy of this book it's very important that they do uh, the book is available on amazon we have it on kindle it's also all throughout europe and um yeah, the UK, we have it on uh, Amazon UK and Amazon Europe, um, so it's available. It's easy to pick up on Amazon. All right, terrific job, and thanks for joining me, Phil. Thank you, uh, Richard, and thank you for uh, keeping this subject alive. It's the least I can do. All right, my man, thank right. you. Bye-bye. There you go, the late Phil Marshall. 
Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of the circumstances behind Phil's death, but less than five months after this interview, probably one of Phil's last interviews, he supposedly took a gun, shot his two teenage children while they slept, killed the family dog, and then shot himself. At least that's the official story. I'm not sure I buy it. Not that I can say I knew Phil that well, but we talked on the phone, exchanged maybe a dozen emails. We met in person, as I mentioned earlier, on the Santa Monica Pier and talked for about two hours. He seemed to me to be a very kind, gentle, rational human being. And some independent researchers who looked into the alleged murder-suicide said Phil was either right-handed or left-handed, I can't remember, but the gun was found in the wrong hand. They supposedly interviewed a neighbor who said that there was a suspicious character around the house shortly before the incident. Now, I don't know what to tell you. I will say this. Immediately upon hearing the news of Phil Marshall's death in February of 2013, I checked my email as I always do when someone I know has passed away. I always check to see the last email correspondence. And I do not delete emails until my email is completely full. And then I go back and delete emails from two, maybe three years prior. I've always done this. And besides, the final email correspondence with Phil was after the final radio interview, five months prior to his death. So I typed Phil's email into the search box. Nothing. Nothing came up. No emails. The entire thread was gone. I'm not sure what to make of that either. So, my thanks to Carlos Cagina and Ryan White. Back next week with Carl Gallops and more biblical prophecy. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.